When we look out at the universe, we see it's filled with objects involved in the great gravitational dance of the cosmos. Every object that's in the universe deforms the space around it and attracts all the other matter and energy to it. Matter tells space-time how to curve, space-time tells matter how to move. For a long time, for decades and decades and decades, this was something we could calculate in Einstein's theory of general relativity. How is space-time deformed, and what are the ripples, the gravitational waves that pass through it? But only in the last three years since the LIGO detector came online and began at its precise sensitivity actually detecting these waves have we been able to gain a new window on the universe. Now that we've come so far, we've detected merging black holes, we've detected merging neutron stars, what's next? What is the future of gravitational wave astronomy? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. My guest this week is an awesome astrophysicist. She has a PhD, she has worked in gravitational waves, and she is also an expert on both the Star Trek and the science fiction circuit. I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Erin McDonald. Well, thank you so much. I'm really, really happy to be here. This is a blast. Yeah, Erin, thank you for being my guest, and thank you for being willing to talk about this fascinating phenomenon here in the universe. When we talk about gravitational waves, we're talking about these ripples that move through space at the speed of light. We're talking about an entirely new type of radiation that isn't some type of electromagnetic wave, that isn't you know, moving at the speed of light because it has electric and magnetic fields oscillating that doesn't carry these types of energies that will interact with electrons, that will get absorbed by matter, that will get re-emitted again. We're talking about energy inherent to the fabric of space itself. If there were one thing you could tell the world about gravitational waves that you wish people knew and appreciated, what would that be? That's a great question. I think you summed it up great. You know, the um, the thing that's really distinct that people should appreciate, and I think do appreciate about gravitational waves, is the fact that we have always observed our universe with electromagnetic radiation. We have always used, you know, radio telescopes, gamma ray telescopes, visual telescopes. All of this is electromagnetic radiation. It's using our eyes effectively through different wavelengths. Um, but gravitational waves are a totally different way to observe our universe. Um, I akin it to sound waves. Now, they're not sound waves, um, but it's like a, just a totally different how sound is, you know, on Earth and through the air medium, um, a compression wave, and then our eyes take in electromagnetic waves. It's the same way you can, you know, we have all those sensory deprivations that you can go into a dark room and your ears pick up different things. Um, your eyes will pick up stuff you don't hear. It's the same thing with observing our universe that our traditional method of um, detecting things with electromagnetic radiation, there's just a whole host of other stuff that we can detect through gravitational waves. And it's a completely different method of astronomy. So we have a whole new universe open up to us now. 
I think that's a wonderful analogy. I I think you describe it very similarly to how I do. I think a lot of people, when they see, hear gravitational waves, they think about, oh, this is just a a new type of astronomy, the way radio astronomy is different from optical astronomy, or the way gamma ray astronomy is different. And it's, I guess it's more different than that, is how yeah. I would describe it. People were like, oh, is this like when Galileo first took his telescope and looked up and saw more than you could see with the naked eye? And I said, no, it's not like that at all. It's more like if we lived on Venus, where the atmosphere was always continually covered in clouds and you could see nothing. But you knew, because you predicted it, that, that there should be things above the clouds that there should be things to see when LIGO three years ago made that first gravitational wave detection that was like having a miraculous parting of the clouds on Venus looking up with the telescope and finding for the first time a point of light out there in the sky and it turned out to be something really fascinating like Saturn yeah that that was that was the first thing you saw yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to appreciate that first detection, how amazing it is and how much science there was just in one detection that we had, um, you know, we detected gravitational waves for the first time, which were predicted by Einstein 100 years previously, um, from two black holes, two intermediate mass black holes colliding and merging and just every... Almost every single word that I just said was like a new thing that was discovered. Yeah, let's let's dive into that one about intermediate mass black holes because that that thing that you just said, intermediate mass black holes, that was something that in theory of course they should exist, right? Astrophysically, you form stars of a whole slew of different masses. Sometimes you have supernovae that that go off and will collapse down and leave what we call a stellar mass black hole behind, which are typically about 10 to 20 solar masses or below. Or you could have these direct collapse black holes, which at that point were mostly theoretical that we would say, oh yeah, you could have these hundred or even thousand solar mass black holes from the early universe. And once you get up to a certain energy, you start doing this weird pair production and that decreases the temperature in the star's core. It decreases the radiation pressure. You get a direct collapse. And if you don't destroy everything, you just turn directly into a black black hole. And we didn't know if there were things in between that, in between about 10 solar masses or so and a few hundred solar masses. And the very first LIGO signal was a 36 solar mass black hole and a 29 solar mass black hole merging together to create a 62 solar mass black holes in one of the greatest affronts to addition of all time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I think, too, that's something that... uh people who are familiar with this sort of um, astronomy and detections and all of that stuff, they may have heard, they may not know a lot about the intermediate mass black hole stuff. And what we really have is, you know, the solar collapse, stars die and massive stars will form black holes, supermassive stars will form black holes. Um, And then we also have always observed um, supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies. And then there were all these other sort of Uh, theories on how you could get from point A to point B. And there was good evidence for all of those. Um, But really in terms of like known mass, we had just detected black holes kind of, as you said, under 20 solar masses 
from x-ray studies, seeing stuff fall into them and the heat that was given off from the stuff that was falling in. And, uh, but yeah, nothing else under that. And then suddenly it just, you get these two black holes merge and you get one, and as you said, <laughs> violation of addition. <laughs> is it 29 and 36 do not make, what was 64, 62? Right, yeah. right. It lost three. It lost three solar masses due to E equals MC squared, yeah. except instead of the normal, M goes into E in the form of light, in the form of electromagnetic radiation, it goes into the form of these ripples in space time in gravitational wave astronomy and by the way i love the fact that for about 200 milliseconds the energy produced from that gravitational wave merger from that one merger of two black holes outshone in terms of power in terms of energy all of the stars in the observable universe combined yes now again it's important to clarify that when we talk about energy energy takes many different forms in physics when we talk about the energy contained in different objects it could be through nuclear force it could be through electromagnetic energy all of this stuff and so when people are hearing that that it's all the stars energy combined in that fraction of a second that it's not electromagnetic. We don't see those blips. If we had seen those, then we would have had other evidence. But because gravitational wave astronomy is a new type of astronomy and gravitational waves carry energy in a different way, we're just, it's a whole different field of science and it's just opened up to us to explore. And, and a lot of it is very counterintuitive. I remember being very surprised and, and I'm a physicist too. Like I remember being very surprised when I learned that uh, unlike light, when you go twice as far away from a light source, you only get one quarter the intensity of light because the farther away you go, light spreads out like the surface of a sphere. So if you're twice as far away, you're only intercepting a quarter of that radiation with your given telescope or eye or whatever you look with. But gravitational waves don't work like that. If you're twice as far away from a gravitational wave source, you get half the energy, not yeah. a quarter, which means if you're a hundred times as far away from a gravitational wave source, you get 1% of that energy instead of 0.01% of that energy, which is tremendous. It means based on where we have LIGO today, we have these four kilometer arms in each direction that we send light down, bip, 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 it reflects back and forth about a thousand times, we bring it back together, and we get an interference pattern. If the length of one of those arms changes relative to the other one, then that's going to result in a time delay for how long that light travel path actually is. And you'll see that interference pattern start to shift. And that shifting interference pattern is how you reconstruct a gravitational wave. It's incredibly clever. But it means that if you replace your four kilometer arms with 40 kilometer arms, if you build your, your observatory to have 10 times the baseline, 10 times that length, then all of a sudden that means you can see 10 times farther into the distant universe with that same apparatus. You're, if you can get that seismic noise down, or the other, all the other forms of noise too, of course, but if you can get that noise down, you build something 10 times as large, you can see 10 times as far. That's so much better than traditional astronomy where to see 10 times as far, you need to build something with 100 times 
the resolution a hundred times the light gathering power. This is this is incredibly killer for gravitational wave astronomy. Absolutely. And that sensitivity goes in both, you know, exactly what you said. It goes in both directions because when we look out the volume of stuff out there in our celestial sphere, as it expands, because our sensors get that much more sensitive, you're expanding your volume by how volume expands in the amount of um, events and stars and black holes and all of those are so much faster available to you and just your likelihood of detecting events. That was why, um, you know, when we were making, going from traditional initial LIGO, which was really kind of a test prototype. It was one of those that it was up, it was operational, it was exactly, it was what we were expecting it to be. And it was on and prepared to detect things if something happened close by. But the likelihood of that happening was incredibly low. So we would not have been surprised if, as it happened, initial LIGO didn't detect anything. Now, when advanced LIGO came online with 10 times the sensitivity, suddenly you have a thousand times the volume of space has been expanded out to you. And you, um, you are immediately able to detect so much more stuff that we figured that if we didn't detect something in advanced LIGO within a year, then we would actually start questioning general relativity more than we would our detection methods because we were so likely to detect something from the amount of stuff that we were able to see now. And sure enough, it's like T minus three weeks, three weeks before it was supposed to officially be turned on, that was when they made their first detection because both detectors were on and operational at that time. And yeah. Um, I, I had heard from many members of the collaboration who were involved in that discovery that it was really kind of a, oh, the admins are messing with us. They're doing like they're doing like a double blind injection right when we turned it on just to see if we're all paying attention. And no, this was a real signal that <laughs> no one was prepared to see something this fast. But there it was. Well, and too, that's so funny because if people are interested in it, I highly recommend people look up the big dog incident because this double blind injection idea was something that they did in the initial LIGO era where we wanted to test. We weren't going to spend decades with initial LIGO not detecting anything and not being able to test the fidelity and the setup of our collaboration and our capability to actually detect something, to flow it through our detection algorithms, to weed it out of the noise and be able to confidently say if we had detected something. And so they set up this blind injection where the only a handful of people in a almost thousand person collaboration knew if it was gonna be fake or not. And they literally rattled the mirrors. So it was a hardware injection. So it looked like a gravitational wave, but we all knew that they could do something like that. We just didn't know if they were going to. And the way our collaboration was set up was that they weren't going to tell us for sure until we had written the paper. And in initial LIGO, sure enough, a few months before it was supposed to go off, we got a signal. We went through the whole process. We called it the big dog um, because it was near serious. And we went through the whole process of it. And there are some great articles written about it just from a sociological standpoint. Um, and then we fully expected something similar to be with advanced LIGO. And now I had left the collaboration by this point, but advanced LIGO, if that blip that happened three weeks prior to the official 
turn on. If that had happened within a week of the official turn on, that's exactly what you would have said. Everyone would have been skeptical about it. Nope, this is fake. There's no way. Um, but because it happened in that like before preparatory era, that kind of put everyone on edge to think, oh, this 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 might be a real thing because <laughs> everything's so structured and prepared for. Yeah. I know that's that's really incredible. I think I think of all the people throughout history, I think Ben Franklin would have been most impressed by this because his famous thing about secrets is that three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and and even then we all kind of knew that this stuff wasn't real, but we weren't going to get confirmation until it was true. And then yeah, sure enough, I mean, it when you, you, exactly how you said, <laughs> in terms of keeping secrets, when everyone up the chain starts getting excited about it and kind of loses sleep and won't shut up about it, it's a pretty good sign that's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> so so today, you know, we're, we're talking just so everyone knows, almost exactly three years after this first LIGO event happened. And of course, it wasn't released for another five or six months because people wanted to to vet it and make sure it was what they said it was and m make sure that everything was accounted for as well as it possibly could be. We're looking back now. We've got five or six confirmed black hole, black hole mergers. The first one we found is still the most massive one and the only one one that has tentative three sigma from one observatory evidence for being correlated with a gamma ray transient as well, as yes. seen by the Fermi collaboration. But we also have a kilonova detection where we had neutron star. For those of you who can't see, Erin is pumping her fist right now <laughs> as I, I mentioned this kilonova detection. <laughs> um, no, it's charming and it's wonderful. And it's absolutely true. If you... This was the type of event that people weren't certain they'd be able to detect. And I, I'm sorry, Aaron, if I'm stealing a little bit of your thunder on this one. But this is something where with black hole, black hole mergers, we know that we're looking for a large amplitude signal that's really only going to show up in those final fractions of a second of a merger. The way you build up a signal is you have this enormous noise background. And I say enormous, even though it's the tiniest noise background we've ever had for anything ever. But it's enormous compared to the gravitational wave signals because gravity is such a mind-bogglingly weak force, right? If, if I take two electrons and I'm like, okay, I'm going to put them one meter apart from each other and I'm going to measure the electromagnetic force between them and the gravitational force between them them, there's like 10 to the 41 factor difference between those two forces. So gravity is really weak compared to all of the other forces. With neutron star, neutron star mergers, these are smaller mass things than black holes. We cannot observe the in spiral and merger as close as possible like we can with black holes which are theoretically made of singularities at their center neutron stars have finite radii and once they touch each other once their surfaces touch each other you're going to get a very different reaction to your standard gravitational wave merger and in spiral so you have to build up this long baseline of a low amplitude signal in order to extract it and they were not only able to do it, but then they got the gamma ray confirmation signals simultaneously coincident, 
with with this it was off by like less than one second and then you look at all your other follow-up observatories because we had virgo at the time as well which meant we can pinpoint the location in the sky right they they call it triangulation for a reason yeah virgo is a also a gravitational wave detector in the same configuration as ligo but it's in italy and it's slightly less sensitive so yeah you're right we also had virgo up which was awesome Right. And, and then, and then we said, okay, now follow up. Now let's look with all the other observers. And we have like, I think like 80 some odd observatories now that have seen this across the full electromagnetic spectrum. Really, the only thing missing is if we could get like neutrinos or cosmic rays from this, we would have the ultimate multi-messenger signal where we could see something in electromagnetic radiation, in gravitational radiation, and in particles as well. That's like the ultimate cosmic dream. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it's one of those things that it's amazing how quick, because astronomy sometimes takes a long time to solve some of these puzzles. For a good reason, because you have to puzzle astronomy together. You don't have a lab that you can recreate a lot of this stuff in. And so you have to wait for events to happen. And I think only a few years prior, they had confirmed that short gamma ray bursts were kilonovas, that they were coming from a neutron star clashing with either another neutron star or a black hole, that they were able to detect this like left behind shorn matter um, that was matter that you would find in a neutron star after a gamma ray burst. So they had this indication that a short gamma ray burst was a good indicator of a neutron star collision, which was something that LIGO was looking for. Now, I can't uh, name drop too much in terms of like my association with this stuff since I left the collaboration before they detected, but the one thing I'm super proud of before I left was writing the paper that was about the um, the initial search for gravitational waves from all the gamma ray bursts that Fermi had detected um, in the initial LIGO era and starting to put those upper bounds. So we were hoping to find something. It was very difficult. You're absolutely right in terms of the sensitivity and the noise and everything like that. Um, but the great thing is, is that the astronomy community was excited about it too because of this kilonova detection in the infrared associated with a gamma ray burst. Um, and so it was the worst kept secret in the astronomy world when this went off, when the, the gravitational wave detector picked this up and Fermi picked it up and literally like on the underground messenger network to every telescope available had signed up for this said, point your telescope at this event <laughs> and everyone pointed and everyone saw it i mean it was amazing like you said across the electromagnetic spectrum they were able to detect this in just beautiful multi-messenger astronomy and now in fact recently wasn't there there was a detection between ice cube which is the high energy neutrinos and electromagnetic radiation so we're almost there to the holy trinity <laughs> yeah i mean i i think if you don't mind speculating um my bet for when that first three messenger signals going to come is the next time we get a supernova somewhere in our local group i i know that there are many different ways you can have a supernova but one of my favorites it's I believe it's the second most common supernova after type 2 should be 
which which is a core collapse supernova from a massive star like we talked earlier about how you make black holes. The second most common type is a type 1a supernova, and it's thought, the leading thought, that the majority of them now come from inspiraling and merging white dwarfs. Mm. Now, LIGO, as it stands right now, isn't quite sensitive enough that it should be able to pick up merging white dwarfs. The amplitude is too low, the surfaces of a white dwarf are too large, whereas a neutron star might be a few dozen kilometers in diameter. Uh, something like a white dwarf is going to be more like the size of planet Earth. And so when they inspiral and merge, uh, the gravitational wave signal is going to be a lot weaker and it's going to have a lot uh, lower frequency. So instead of completing an orbit in a fraction of a second, which is what LIGO is sensitive to, if you want a, a back of the envelope calculation to do, um, calculate the number of kilometers in a LIGO arm, four kilometers, multiply it by the number of times you bounce the light forth and back, about a thousand, before you bring it back together, and then say, okay, how long does it take the speed of light to go down four kilometers, back bounce and bounce back and forth a thousand times, come back together? That's roughly the time scale that LIGO is sensitive yeah. to. And these and and LIGO was built for that. It really was because that was something that we could build on Earth that was reasonable. The nice thing, too, is that even though the seismic noise in LIGO is huge just because they're so sensitive, like they can pick up rabbits hopping by in Hanford, uh, Washington, hopping by the detector, but rabbits don't hop at a thousand times a second. So that makes it a lot easier to get out of the noise. Um, but you're absolutely right. The thing with white dwarves is that they're less massive. So, um, you know, neutron stars are incredibly dense because they have such a high amount of mass. White dwarfs have a lot less mass. So they are, um, they do not give off as high of a frequency. Their collision isn't as quick and extreme. And so you're talking more instead of a hundred times a second rotating, going from a thousand to a hundred times a second rotating, you're talking more like um, 10 rotations every second, or sorry, yeah, 10 rotations. One to the minus 10 hertz. I'm not saying this right. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you are, <laughs> one you are trying to say that it takes seconds. one rotation in 10 seconds. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I mean. One rotation every 10 seconds, which is way less uh, that that's outside of LIGO scope. It just can't detect that. But we do have other detectors that are coming online that would be able to detect this. So you're absolutely right. A supernova, type 1A supernova, um, would be able to be detected by future um, gravitational wave observatories. I mean, you could always get lucky and you could have a kilonova within a few thousand light years, and then maybe we can get particles from that too. Right. Um, but that's really rare. When we talk about neutron star, neutron star collisions, this isn't like we expect a galaxy to have one every few decades like we do for a supernova. This is something that we expect, you know, well, if we increase our search volume so that we can get like, you know, a few million galaxies within it, then maybe we'll start seeing one a year or so. 
Which is a good thing because a short gamma ray burst results in a kilonova is also kind of an apocalyptic scenario for Earth. <laughs> it's <laughs> not something you want to be super close by all the time. So, uh, you know, But the odds space. that one of those jets is going to point right at us <laughs> is pretty low. I mean, yeah. you got a big three-dimensional space. I guess, I guess I'm very optimistic about Earth's <laughs> likelihood of surviving anything that the universe is going to throw at us looking at the past four and a half billion years years of a track record uh, well, we're pretty good and and we've had uh, the silurian ordovician extinction we think was a gamma ray burst so we've got already got that in the bag so we're fine the odds are in our favor that's fantastic <laughs> that's fantastic i love it and i love the reference too so um one of the things i wanted to ask is if you had a bet on what you would bet on would be the first triple messenger detection we could make because we have advances that are being made in the ground-based game where people are talking about in the very near future we have kagra another LIGO-like detector coming online in Japan, and LIGO-India. People are talking about lengthening the arms, which I would love to see, because if you make the arms ten times the size, they're going to have to come out of the ground, because the curvature of the Earth, compared to a 40-kilometer straight line, is, is actually significant. But there's also LISA. There's also the potential of going to space, which we're on track to do in about another 20 years, plus or minus five, um, that, that when we have that, we will have these laser arms in space that are going to be sensitive to these much longer period events than LIGO is. One of the most fascinating ones, of course is we should be able to detect objects merging into supermassive black holes with LISA frequencies. But there's this is just all speculation. So what do you think is going to come as like the next great event that either shows up in gravitational waves that we haven't yet seen or that shows up with a triple messenger astronomy uh thingy <laughs> so i i have to unpack that a little bit because there is so much out there that um that could be detected by gravitational waves the way the ligo collaboration breaks it down into their working groups and all of this is really goes down to um continuous gravitational waves and transient gravitational waves so ones that happen and don't repeat um versus continuous which are always being emitted and then we also have within that you break it down into modeled and unmodeled so ones that we can predict what the signal should look like based on general relativity and numerical relativity um, where we do the calculations and this was the binary black holes binary in spirals neutron stars and black holes those are modeled. We can we know what we should expect to see. Um, but then you can have unmodeled ones, so ones we don't quite understand. So to break those all down and to give examples of each of those, um, the continuous modeled gravitational waves are something from neutron stars. So these are dead, you know, compact neutron stars um, that are just could be just by themselves, um, and they rotate, and they rotate incredibly quickly. These are pulsars. Uh, we see, you know, they emit energy um, out like a lighthouse that beam toward us, and we get these pulses, and that's from a neutron star. And the idea is, is that if there's an asymmetry to it, then that would ripple like in a gravitational wave form as well. Um, correlated to the frequency that we see the pulsar. So that's one option for a modeled continuous gravitational wave. 
the modeled uh, transient gravitational waves are the ones we've already seen. We've seen neutron stars in spiral and we've seen black holes in spiral. Um, and then you also have things like uh, the white dwarfs in spiraling as well, ones that we not necessarily detected. Um, you have unmodeled bursts, which are things like type two supernova or any sort of explosion that is happening. So we have a star supernova. We don't know what the gravitational wave signature from that would look like. We, you can imagine space time is going to ripple, but we just don't know what that ripple is going to look like. So it's a little bit harder to dig that out of the noise. We have to use different types of um, noise detection algorithms um, in order to pull that out. And then the unmodeled continuous stuff really is where you're looking at background ripples from just all the white dwarfs that are out there. This is the really low frequency stuff um, or ripples that are still left over from the Big Bang. We call this the stochastic background of our universe. So looking at all of those is a really long answer to your question. Um, but looking at all of those, I think the next big headline making detection that we make, I hope is gonna be from a neutron star, a, a single neutron star. Either we see a transient blip um, due to some, uh, uh, due to a glitch, we see neutron stars glitch in electromagnetic radiation. It would be great if we could see a ripple in space-time coming off of that as well. Um, or what we have traditionally looked for is just this constant emission just from the fact that it can't be perfectly round. There has to be some asymmetry to it or so we think. <laughs> um, the upper limits that we have placed on the crab pulsar, the crab neutron star, which is closest to us, um, actually makes it the smoothest object we've ever known in our universe. The most perfectly round because we've not seen gravitational waves from that. So our understanding of that may be a little bit flawed, but you can make you can still make science without detections. <laughs> no, and that's and that's really incredible. I'm so glad you brought up uh, Princess Vanellope, aka the glitch in pulsars, <laughs> because I think this is one of the most fascinating things we. We knew for a long time, obviously, that the Earth has earthquakes, and this is basically, if you look at geology like a physicist, then you would say, oh, what is the Earth? Well, it's just a sphere with a moment of inertia, which is basically how your mass is distributed in three-dimensional space, and it's rotating. And every once in a while, there will be an earthquake, which is the Earth rearranging its moment of inertia to be smaller. And when your moment of inertia rearranges and gets smaller, your rotation speeds up. So that's why you'll hear things like when you have an earthquake, like the big magnitude 9 one in Japan a few years ago, it made the Earth's rotation speed up by like 1.6 microseconds. This happens in the sun, the sun has star quakes, it happens on the moon, the moon has moon quakes. Pretty much, you make it, we quake it. That's, <laughs> that's how the universe works. But, but then, we take a look at these pulsars, and there's a whole class of pulsars known as millisecond pulsars. These are the fastest rotating objects in the entire known universe. They are also the most accurate natural clocks. There was a period for decades where atomic clocks and pulsars went back and forth as what's the most accurate timekeeping in the universe. Atomic clocks are winning now, and they may win for good, but I'm still on Team Pulsar, <laughs> because this is incredible. The thing is, 
every once in a while, a pulsar will have what we believe is a neutron star quake as well, where it rearranges its moment of inertia. Pulsars, the millisecond ones that you keep time with, are so good that you can watch a pulsar pulse for, you know, a little while, and then you can look away, and then you can look back, and you will know whether 300 billion pulses have passed or 300 billion and one pulses have passed, because our timing is that good. The thing is, when you have a glitch, it rearranges its moments of inertia, and your pulses from before the glitch and after the glitch um, are on different phases now. You've changed the frequency of the pulsar, and there's that one discontinuity in the frequencies. That's the type of thing that we know if you have this very large mass changing its configuration very rapidly, I think this is the perfect candidate for, um, I guess you would call it a crudely modeled gravitational wave yeah. signal. Well, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to start learning astrophysics from gravitational waves to actually use them instead of um, to actually, once we start becoming regular observers of the gravitational wave universe, to be able to start extracting unknown science out of it. You know, we have these modeled signals and we still, don't get me wrong, learn a lot from them. Um, but the idea that with glitches in pulsars, you know, what happens is you have these regular pulses and like you said, then they suddenly increase and then start going back down. So it's, you just get this like do, 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 and it goes like back down and that's the glitch. That's all we really know about them. That's just that change in the timing. And so, however, having this incredibly dense, massive object that is quaking, that's a great contender for a gravitational wave detection. And it allows us to see beyond what we can just observe electromagnetically um, to try to learn what causes them. There are some great models out there. You actually get to throw out the term nuclear pasta, which is awesome, um, <laughs> as like what this neutron star matter could be doing to cause these quakes um, or to settle after the quakes. But you can only model that stuff. And so having more astronomy, like gravitational wave astronomy, will Will allow us to solve those riddles and those puzzles which is awesome i also love that um you know you talked about uh, we can't do these experiments in a lab but as an astrophysicist i always think that the universe is my lab <laughs> yeah. the whole universe is my lab if i can see it then i can measure it and that's where i can test it so as we are going to greater and greater sensitivities as we are you know building more sensitive gravitational wave observatories getting the noise down increasing the arm length or the number of reflections or going to space using novel methods like using pulsar timing networks and how the changes of the pulse arrival times vary over time we can infer all sorts of signals not everything needs to be a super direct detection for us to get information about it as we know there are people looking for the signals imprinted by gravitational waves from inflation in the cosmic microwave background. If we got a signal from that, it would also be revolutionary and would give us yet another indirect method of detecting these gravitational waves. And I think this is a, this is a fascinating time to be alive at the birth of a new type of astronomy. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're 100% correct. I think people who are interested in like learning more about this stuff, they've they've done some great outreach stuff. You have the LIGO Open Science Center, which allows you to actually download LIGO data if you want to play for it, your, play with it yourself. Taxpayer money bought LIGO, so the you own the data too. Um, you can also explore some tutorials on data analysis. Um, you can do some citizen science with LIGO data. You can sign up for Einstein at Home, which like SETI at Home will allow your computer's processor to process gravitational wave data in order to make those continuous gravitational wave detections. Um, and then, yeah, keeping an eye out on all these future programs. We have CAGRA and the Einstein telescope. Those are still ground-based, but they're using cryogenics and going underground. Um, they are going into space with LISA and future um, programs like the BBO, I think, is a space-based program as well. Um, yeah, do you know Do you know what that is? That's Big Bang Observer, <laughs> and it's supposed to be an add-on to LISA, whereas LISA's going to have three spacecraft in orbit, you know, near Earth. What BBO is supposed to do is it's supposed to have the three LISA spacecraft, three additional spacecraft to sort of make you like a hexagon or Star <laughs> of David shape there, and then to put a network of three at L4 and a network at three at L5 so you can actually get something that isn't just the baseline of the distance between the LISA detectors, but it's the baseline of a little more than one AU. We're talking about something that's the size of Earth's orbit around the sun. If we build BBO, then we could immediately detect OJ287, which is the largest binary black hole known in the universe. It is like a 20 billion solar mass black hole orbited by a 150 million solar mass black hole in a period of, I want to say, like 11 years. And so, whereas we think, oh, Mercury, that's how you detect general relativity, it processes by an additional 43 arc seconds per century due to general relativity. Um, the precession of OJ287, I believe, is like 270 degrees per orbit. <laughs> that's insane. That's awesome. So cool. Yeah, there's the amount of astronomy that we're able to do now with all these different detectors is fantastic. And then the pulsar timing arrays, as you mentioned, um, are the next step. And those, those are, like you said, using these pulses as your detectors that you know what you should get in one direction, you know what you should get in another direction. And if there's any deviation from those, you can, through a lot of data processing, but you can extract the, the shift in space time from the shift in the pulsar, millisecond pulsar signals. So awesome stuff. Yeah, how cool would that be on a golden record? <laughs> exactly. All right. So, so last thing, if you had, if you had one place you wanted people to keep their eyes on or keep their ears to the ground for, as far as gravitational waves go, what would you say, hey, this is something you definitely want to keep a lookout for. This is something you definitely want to make sure that uh, you, you scan the news for every once in a while. Multi-messenger astronomy. That's the buzzword. That's the cool stuff that's coming out with this. If you hear multi-messenger astronomy, what they mean is these different combinations of ways to observe our universe, uh, whether that's from particles and electromagnetic or electromagnetic and gravitational wave, or maybe one day gravitational waves and particles, or maybe all three. Um, those are really the big hot button things, stuff I'm personally interested in. 
Obviously, anything with a headline that says colliding black holes, because there's nothing more objectively awesome than colliding <laughs> black holes. Um, but I think really, you know, if people are looking for um, the big detections that are coming out that seem to be coming out on a yearly basis, if not more regularly, it's these multi-messenger detections. That's absolutely fantastic. And I agree with that completely. If you can see something in gravitational waves, that's already a brand new thing that's teaching us so much about what actually is out there in the universe in a whole new way. And when you say multi-messenger, yeah, colliding neutron stars, we know what that is. It was only in the last few years that we had discovered, as you said, that oh, some of these short-period gamma-ray bursts are caused by colliding neutron stars. It was the leading theory for a long time, but it didn't really have evidence for it. It was, as you said, the multi-messenger detection where you also saw the signal in the infrared that showed you that's what it was. That's also, if I remember right, how we learned that, oh, this is actually where the majority of heavy elements beyond about element 45 or so is produced in the universe. Not yeah. in supernovae, not in, you know, dying sun-like stars, but in this, in this process of smashing together two different neutron stars. If you were to say, hey, if we smash together two neutron stars, yeah, you get you get either a bigger neutron star or a black hole out with like 95% of your mass. But that other 5% is super important. That gives you the majority of these heavy elements in the universe. Every time you smash two neutron stars together, you get about 20 moon masses worth of gold alone. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you want to get rich quick, go collide a couple neutron stars together and uh, gather it up. Good luck. <laughs> All right. Well, Aaron, thank you for being my guest here on the Starts With a Bang podcast this week. Is there any final message you'd like to leave our listeners with? And would you like to tell them where they can find you online? Absolutely. I mean, there's tons of resources. I mentioned a few of them to get involved. If you're really interested in gravitational waves, you can go to LIGO.org. Their educational resources are fantastic for all ages and all experiences. So I highly recommend those. Um, for people looking for me online, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Mack, D-R Aaron Mack, E-R-I-N-M-A-C. And um, I also have a YouTube series called Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe, where I talk about the science behind science fiction. And um, yeah, hit me up, Twitter or, or YouTube. I'm, I'm always there. I also have a Twitch channel, uh, Dr. Aaron Mack, where I occasionally will live stream um, some science facts. And that comes and goes depending on my availability throughout the year. Erin's also a great public speaker, and if you have the opportunity to see her in person, I would highly recommend it. Uh, keep your eyes peeled all over the country for her. I'd like to conclude this by mentioning just one last thing. We have only ever seen one neutron star-neutron star merger since gravitational wave astronomy got its start. That was the famed Kilanova event of 2017, and what happened there was something very spectacular, because when two neutron stars collided, what we saw was, for a fraction of a second, that fused object, that merged object, appeared to still be a neutron star. It was only a tiny fraction of a second later that we believe it collapsed down to a black hole. 
what's going on there? Well, we think there are three different realms that a neutron star-neutron star merger could lead to. One, if the neutron stars merging are relatively low in mass, then when they merge together, they're going to just result in another more massive neutron star that spins down and continues spinning. If they're too high of a mass, they'll go directly into being a black hole. But somewhere in between is what we observed. Somewhere in between, you can form a neutron star that spins so rapidly, and as it rings down, as it loses its angular momentum, it's going to collapse down into a black hole. We think that these thresholds are somewhere between about two and a half and three solar masses total. And this is fascinating because we've seen neutron stars a little over two solar masses pretty routinely. And we've seen black holes of about five solar masses or more very routinely. But in that two and a half to five range, this kilonova result was the first object we had that fell in that range. So as LIGO continues on with no upgrades, with no new technology, with nothing else, just as we gather more events, we're going to learn where that border is between neutron stars and black holes. The future of gravitational wave astronomy is bright, and we are here witnessing it and being a part of it as it all happens. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above right here and now. Thanks go to Robert J. Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, Chris Shaw, Pavel Zuzelski, Denier, John Methot, Thomas Sola, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, William Barr, Alexander Marius, John Kozura, Flo, Jose Enrique, Elver Sena Sosa, Frederick Y. Martello, Gaijin, DGE, Sean Foley, Rafal Wojcik, Mark Armstrong, Eric Brown, Marcelo Barnaba, Danny, Andrew Douglas, Richard Jousey, Chris Hilly, Weller Tractor Salvage, Zarko Opachik, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Karen Garrison, Benjamin Turner, Kelly Kudrick, John Seal, Randall Slimak, Mark Bloor, Philip Radilovic, Fraser Kane, Tom Van Scotter, Darren Redfern, Dana Bridges, Patrick Dennis, David Taschioni, Jerry Wilterding, Jeffrey Kidd, Kevin Barnes, Glenn McDavid, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Jeffrey Fisher, Joe McFarlane, Brack Paxton Thomason, Richard Schwartz, Michael Lewis, Ronan Yechazel, Nick Delroy, Mark Langston, Tomas All, Fletch, Steve Schaber, Mike, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Radek Nesbida, Nathan Hanna, and David Krumpotic. Thanks everyone for all your support and thanks for tuning in. And I'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. Starts With a Bang.